Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined by my co-host and star of the show, Bob Schaefer, and this is Touch Em All, episode 226 right now. And uh, just a quick message to our audience. Just want to thank you guys. We went over that 20,000 barrier uh, earlier this week, and we opened up a new, um, I guess, a new measurement for our podcast world here. We got visuals on another streaming apparatus where we had an additional 20. So we've really blown up here this past week. Um, we brought our show to you ad free over the last year. We're now starting to entertain sponsors and uh, that's a wonderful spot for our podcast to be in. Keep supporting us. 72 countries have been faithful and loyal and we can keep providing you great content every week like we do here with Touch Em All. Uh, but uh, Shafe, great to have you back. Great, great first right, thank couple you. of shows forward here. To it. Um, welcome back to your show. Yeah. Well, with the the obvious this week, and we get into the our favorite part, the nuts and bolts, we have the draft, we had the uh, home run derby, now we have the all-star game. You've been in baseball a long time. Uh, I remember when I was a kid waking up on Saturday mornings, and this is post, they were retired already, but got a chance to watch, you know, Mickey Mantle against, you know, Willie Mays in a home run, one-on-one home run derby. Last night we saw, you know, I think it was eight guys go for two minutes and all sorts of festivities and, uh, you know, God knows what was in those baseballs they were knocking out of there. But uh, how do you like the home run derby now? And I mean, do you, you obviously remember those back then you turn on the TV on the weekend and you'd see two guys battling it out for a hundred dollars, right? They got like a hundred dollar gift card. How to get a million dollars at some eatery. <laughs> well, I don't know. It's yeah, like uh, showing up. It's a show, but you know, it's too long. Those guys are dying. I mean, one of the guys I thought was going to fall over and, uh, it's just a lot of swings and people don't realize how much a swing takes out of you, especially when it's rapid fire and you're trying to swing not almost as hard as you can and hit it as far as you can. And I think it's just too long. The first round for sure is too long. And I don't know. I was just, uh, I think uh, Julio, he put a show on the first round. I think he had no, nothing left the second round, but uh, I, I, I stopped watching about the second round, to be honest with you. Yeah, I got bored too. I, I watched that first round because, like you said, they lay it all out there, and you know, guys are hitting 40, 45, and then by the time they get to round three and four, it's down in the teens. Um, and and I, I was explaining my, I watched it with my sons, my wife, and our oldest daughters into baseball. So I was not a home run hitter. I was a negative launch angle guy, and uh, never, never a max swing. Right. I don't even know if I ever swung max one time, even on a three one. But uh, explain to them just how you saw those guys breathing heavy. It's a cardio work out if you're you're cranking it like that and um you know and I, I was I enjoyed the the Rauchman oddly Rauchman the catcher from Baltimore uh, he was back home in Seattle that's where he's from that area grew up watching the Mariners yeah play. that was good I was mean nice Harper's father through him too and he did a good job and it's all about the pitcher really I mean I remember uh, a friend of mine Dave Giles threw to uh, Alonzo when he won it the first time and uh, he was right there every pitch and same with the other guy that threw Julio. I mean, he didn't even take a stride, but he was right there with every pitch. And uh, that's a big factor in hitting the home runs for sure. Oh, yeah. And again, uh, Julio's pitcher was phenomenal. It was minimal motion. Right. He probably got 12, 14 more swings than everybody else during those early rounds. And uh, he was he was right on the money, too. I think he missed like two or three times late in the game. And that was another thing I was sharing with my uh, – my, my sons, I said, I used to always get grabbed to throw BP in practice. I was a second baseman and uh, they wanted that short delivery, you know, that, that 65 mile an hour straight ball right on. Uh, yeah. right well, on I one think of the they should adjust it somehow because, you know, but, uh, the, the real home runners weren't in there. Some were, but some weren't. And, 
you know, some of you guys get hurt or have a bad second half of the season because of it. They blame it on home run hitting contests. And I can almost see why, because they change their, their swing a little bit. But just the fatigue factor, uh, instead of having three days off, they go and get wiped out that one home run hitting contest day. And uh, somehow they got adjusted. I mean, you know, Soto should have been back in there. Uh, there's a few guys that should have been in there, and, but they just don't, you know, they pass because they don't want to jeopardize getting hurt or, or getting, you know, affect their second half of the season. Yeah, that was, I, I wonder how much that had to weigh into Soto last year. He won right. the Derby and had a, a down year average wise. Anyway, and I remember years ago when Griffey, Ken Griffey was in a junior and uh, right after the Derby, he was taking batting practice and he noticed how much longer his swing was and him and his dad <laughs> went right back to business when got on the tee and, he made mention of it. He said, it's yeah. well, it's lengthened my swing out. I a lot of players have, short again. You know, had a bad second half and they attributed to the home run hitting contest. So whether it's real or not, I don't know, but I think it affects a lot of people and psychologically a lot of them don't want to do it anymore. Yeah. Now the, uh, the draft. Yeah, I saw, the I saw game, some of it, but uh, I just watched the guys who we drafted. And, you know, the first two guys are very interesting. I don't know anything about any of them. I haven't watched an amateur game in probably 40 years. So. I don't follow the amateurs too much, but uh, it was, again, I think it's at the wrong time of year. I think it should be done, you know, before that. It should be in June sometime, like it was before. And just, these kids sit out for like a month and a half before they start playing again. That's and, when it used to be. Yeah, you know, they're probably afraid to go to, you know, to go to Cape Cod League or something like that in case they get hurt, especially a high round guy. So, I don't know. It To me, it, it doesn't belong during the All-Star break. Yeah. yeah. What was the reasoning? Show. Another dog and pony Not show? Big dramatic and uh that's Manfred, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well he, he caught some uh, I guess <laughs> yeah, he caught some his popular. version of applause. <laughs> they last finally night, had right? Raul, they behind him. Supply, you know, announced him after that. <laughs> yeah. You can't well Raul was one of the best guys I ever coached, probably one of the best yep. guys I ever played I baseball as far as being a nice guy. So be tough to boo Raul, that's for sure. <clears throat> yeah no without without question and um so you know we first half of the season almost there now i guess i'll talk to the all-star game here all-star game obviously not like it used to be I hate that we say that all the time but it's uh more again more of a show do you do you remember or is it you know, i think there's a lot more pride in more it competitive? i mean uh, the all-star game you know, before what the, made it more? Uh, free agency for sure but uh and before the uh interleague it was a National League against the American League, and there was a little pride in, in winning that game. And then, I don't know, it was a Manfred. Somebody put in where you win the game. It tended, you know, the league that wins the game has home field advantage, which is stupid because it's an exhibition. You know what I mean? I mean, everybody should play. It's an exhibition, and uh, it shouldn't be like who wins. It's just it's a show, like I said, for the fans and for the best players in the game, theoretically. So it's it's a great event, so to speak. But and one thing that bothered me, you know, I always went to that Futures game when yeah. I was younger and scouting every league, but I went to many of them. And now this year they had seven innings. So one guy, I remember one guy, he pinch hit for him and or took him out after two innings. I mean, I don't know what that's all about, but I don't know why they can't play nine innings. <laughs> yeah, that's, and that's that's something that when they added that, I thought, okay, that'll satisfy me instead of the all-star game not being, you know, what it used to be. But those, those right. are the guys I want to watch. Those are the guys I don't get to see every day. And um, 
get a chance to see the future a little bit, like we saw with with uh, Oddly Rutschman last night um, and Julio Rodriguez. Those are special players. Are you allowed to comment know, on those but, guys? Uh, I mean, Zach, they're good players. I can tell you that. That's position. all I can say. Nothing bad to say about them, but uh, but they, you know, they're, they're fun to watch and they're really good players yeah. and they're you know they put on a show for sure. Yeah, Rochman's a, I mean, six four switch hitting catcher. Um, you know, hits for average, bats top third of the lineup. That's back in the days of the Thermon Munson and Johnny yeah. Benches of the world. Well, what's happened in the last few years or last 10, 12 years? A guy signs a catcher and they put him somewhere else because they don't want him to get hurt. Like Bryce Harper was a catcher. They moved, they moved to the outfield. And uh, that makes sense to a certain right. extent. But, you know, catching is probably, they all say, is probably one of the worst positions as far as talent goes. But with those three guys you mentioned, I mean, you know, they're good players. And, uh, I don't know if it's going to get back to that way or not, but, uh, you know, eventually they might move one of those guys or some of those guys at first base or maybe the outfield just to keep them from getting hurt. Yeah, later on in the career, I'm sure the wear and tear. But now, do guys try to use that as a as a means to get into Major League Baseball? And I, I, I use a guy like um, – we heard Stan Meek was on last week. He was talking about the JT Realmuto uh, signing when he was with the Phillies. And – he saw him as a shortstop, and just by chance, he had, he had to catch that day because their reg, regular catcher had to pitch because the pitcher's arm was sore. So he went to go watch him play short. He ended up catching, and they ended up signing Romuto as a catcher because of that one outing. But I see it in reverse. You know, the guys are trying to well, enter the game as a catcher. The is, way that, to sign is that a way to, to catch a scout pitcher side? or a catcher? Because that's where the you know that's where the need is. But you know, Bob Boone was a third baseman. He converted to catcher, and it's probably one of the second in number of games caught. So, like you said, it's reversed a little bit now. But uh, I, don't know, I just think I was a catcher. I caught in high school in Legion a little bit. And I, I really like to be. I really like catching. I was little, but I liked it. And, uh, you know, you're in charge of the game. Now I get to college, and uh, they had some big guy that they recruited. So I figured maybe I better go play the infield. So I started second base and got moved over to shortstop. So it worked out for me in the long run. But catching was a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I liked it too. I, I did a little bit of that growing up. And because of my size too, I was recommended to get to the middle infield because of my size and quickness. But I always used that when I played even in college and, and beyond because even being a, 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 a what would you call it, an emergency catcher, that, that kept you signed for a little while. I, I was a second baseman. I said, I'll, I'll catch in emergencies. And I, uh, I knew several languages so I could talk to the international players. So you try to hang on any way you can, as long as you can, whatever skills you got. Yeah, no, it's. Uh, I told him I'll do the language translation as long as I'm not releasing anybody. Don't tell me I'm releasing, and I'm never. I pointed to we had a big release. Yeah, right. I'm never taking him him out of the game. So don't ask me to take him out of the game. English, because I'll get. Uh, I don't know what he's going to do. Well, we we uh, we saw uh, Domingo Herman uh, perfect game with the Yanks last week. No, but I coached in Kansas City when Sarah Higgins was a hitter. That's the, the close. Field. They came to a perfect game. Um, I don't think anyone pitched a no hitter against us. So that was the only real. Uh, no hitter I saw in person, but I've seen a few in scouting, uh, and I've seen a lot on TV. You know, David Wells threw a perfect game, and he was a real pitcher. He he looked didn't look like a pitcher, but he was, and uh, it just shows you that uh, you know you got to have. There's a luck factor, no doubt about it. But uh, same token, if you throw quick, you, you know, speed up your delivery, so to speak, and keep the uh, outfielders and infielders on their toes. You got a better chance of making great plays, but every no hitter has had two or three really great plays behind them that could be could have been hits, but 
the defense saved them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then his next start, um, he was on pace to do something really special again, and Yankees yanked him after. I think that he got up to 70-some-odd pitches. That's kind of what I want to touch on right here. We're getting to that point now. We had a, uh, a guest on yesterday, Len Furman. He's the sports time traveler, and he chronicled a game 60 years ago between Warren yeah. Spahn, who was 42, and Juan Marichal, who was 24, and combined it through something like 470 right. pitches in a 16-inning game. Neither guy came out. Um, and But nowadays, a guy throws 70 pitches. Herman throwing 70 pitches. I think it was one-hit baseball. After um, throwing a perfect game, the Yanks take him out after 70 pitches. What What is – I mean, guys are getting hurt more than ever before. Um and I know I'm asking you to play devil's advocate here and, and enter the world of insanity, but what what are they doing? Like, what is well, the purpose? Somebody what came is up with 100 pitches. Purpose anyway? The arm's going to uh, blow up, so you get them out of here with 100. So that 100 became maybe 90, 80, maybe 110 if you stretch it. But as soon as he goes over 100, the announcers go crazy. They think the guy's going to get hurt. To me, a number of pitches never hurt a guy yet. I mean, if you condition right, I mean, I think Nolan Ryan, who I played against in 1966, he wasn't Nolan Ryan then, but he was still pretty good. But he threw 200 and some pitches one game. Uh, Bob Gibson had 32 complete games. The mentality of pitchers now is go five innings, get a win, even though wins don't mean a whole lot from the analytics point of view. But it, to me, it does. Then six innings is a uh, uh, quality start. But in those days, when the pitcher started the game, his mentality was, I'm going to complete the game. It's my game. I'm going nine innings. I'm going to complete, complete the game. And, you know, the best pitchers were starters, and they put the other guys in a bullpen. But now the bullpens have become regular roles, and they all throw 100 miles an hour just about. Go one inning, you know, no matter how many pitches you throw, then the next guy. So to me, they, they're eliminating, they're trying to eliminate injuries. There's more injuries than ever, and the problem is don't get better. You can't get better throwing 80, 90 pitches as a starter. you got to overload to get back to, you say you throw 121 time. Next time, 100 is going to be easy for you. And it's just uh, if a pitching coach and a manager watch the pitcher and his arm's not dropping, he's not losing his legs, you got to let him go. But very few pitchers in baseball right now can get out of a jam in a sixth inning. You get in a jam in a sixth, even a fifth sometimes, the manager comes out and yanks him because the analytics probably got a red light that goes off in a dugout, take him out of the game. And just to me, the guys don't get better. And I see it in the minor leagues all the time that guys don't pitch enough. Uh, it'd be interesting to see what happens. You know, this kid that got drafted number one, somebody say threw 130 pitches, one playoff game or something. And I'll guarantee it, the most he's going to throw when he first signs will be maybe 80, maybe 70, 80, 90 pitches. Yeah, kind of kind of baby in the arms. I think so. It's, but it's you know, as I mean, much mental there's as There's so many other things they do besides pitch. They go in a weight room and do all those exercises in there, some heavy weights, which to me is destructive. But, uh, I would just think that some owners got to come and realize that there's so many guys in the disabled list or in, uh, injured list. I think you told me there was 300 last you counted, which is 10 a team, basically. The amount of money they're spending for these guys yeah. are injured. I mean, injury is going to happen. But when you hurt yourself, when you pull a muscle or your arm gets fatigued or something like that, you know, you know that, that's, that shouldn't happen. I mean, the conditioning guys, they make most of them make a player uh, stronger, but not baseball strong. And, you know, the only way you're going to get better is throw and run. And the guys who throw the most have the strongest arms. The guys who run the most avoid yeah. a lot of leg, leg injuries. 
So you, you would agree with, um, and we, we hit this on different parts of our show, Sal Marinello is our performance coach on the show, and his premise is you get exactly. stronger in I mean, baseball the days, by performing used to baseball pick up, You know, you get you know, 10 feet I'm away sure. from somebody, and the coach will roll your ball left, roll it to the right. You move back and forth, shuffle your feet. It's a coordination thing as well as a conditioning thing. It conditions your leg and legs and everything else. But I think somebody, some pitcher or something had a sore back afterwards, so they eliminate the pickups. The pitching coach used to run the pitchers. They get out in the outfield, they play like a football pass. They all go one at a time, and the coach would lead them, make them run a little faster to catch up to the ball, and it was fun. Plus, they got in shape without even knowing they getting in shape. But you don't see that anymore. They might run in a treadmill, which is not the same as running yeah. on a baseball field, but I know some organizations don't believe in having pitchers run, which I don't know where they come up with that, but you know, it's just anti-baseball. I mean, you know, Roger Clemens used to run all through uh, Boston condition himself and he went too bad so i don't know what's happening but somebody should take a hard look at the conditioning no, programs and, and figure this out because every day you get up in the morning you read the internet and this guy's out this guy pulled a hamstring this guy pulled an oblique i mean you don't pull obliques from swinging a bat you pull obliques in a, in a weight room doing those medicine balls and all that kind of stuff they do yeah at some point i mean they're getting the exact results they're they're supposed to get there are more injuries, uh, less innings on the mound. And let's just say you had a chance to reshape it. Um, the way pitching was going, they, they decided to well, blow it up. And first start of all, you got to start with throwing. Where would you My start? My first year in the big league camp was with the Mets. George Bamberger was the, was a manager. He made everybody throw 15 minutes a day, just play catch 60, 80 and 90 feet. In just 15 minutes, not 14 minutes. He made everybody throw, pitchers, infielders, outfielders, catchers. They just played catch with the proper mechanics, you know, keeping the front side closed and so forth. And you just exercise your arm. That year, 1982, um, there were like, I think they used maybe 13 pitches or 15 pitches for the whole season. No one really got hurt. And that's what it's all about. You got to throw. I mean, you, you, you exercise your arm, then you strengthen your arm by throwing a long toss. But I don't think they throw enough anymore. And, uh, you know, throwing is something that to get a better arm, you got to throw more. And that's what it's all about. But, I mean, again, I always tell the players, you know, the more you play, the better you're going to be. But if you get hurt, you can't play, so you're not going to improve. So you got to keep yourself from getting hurt. And that one way to keep yourself getting hurt is do the right kind of exercise program for baseball, not just to make yourself big and strong and look good in the lobby. In, yeah, that, that all airport team that we've got now, they walk up those yeah. planes, they uh, they look like Hulk. So we talk about baseball activities make you stronger. You talked about conditioning the legs make you stronger. What are some other baseball things that can make well, a, I just a baseball think player the bat. stronger? I mean, I know when I ran the Miley's for the Red Sox, we used to swing the bat as a group 100 times before we even started, you know, batting practice. You know, it simulate like five down and in, five up and away. And we get 100 swings. And we all swing, you know, ready, go. And just that alone is a good conditioning program, which you saw last night in the home run hitting contest. Those guys were, were beat up after those uh, swings. And so swinging a bat for young kids, especially or for anybody, you know, just swing the bat and assimilate the pitch in a certain area of the zone. So that that's one thing you can do. Another thing is just, like I said, throwing. And, uh, you know, exercise your arm. And then strengthen your arm by throwing a long toss. And when you throw a long toss, you have to throw it on a line. You can't loft it up in the air and throw a fly ball to somebody. You throw it on a line. And uh, that, that's, huh? Now, talk to that. That's, that's 
something that's often debated out there. That that. Well, I mean, that's how you, every toy you make in baseball is a straight line. You don't argue anywhere. Like I said, when you throw a cutoff man, there's no cutoff man. You throw one hop to the base. So throw it like you know, it's going to be a little bit of an arc, but it's not going to be a right fly ball arc. But yeah. That it gets over exaggerated, and why do why do people promote that? Because I see that all over. I mean, it's it's a lot like the uh, it, to me, it's a lot like when the pitchers are um, when they're doing those, they get in a stride, they start moving their leg back, and they throw that one max velocity with the grunt. Um, why are people saying? I don't know. I don't know what's the reason for a lot of things. I think the reason is because they don't really know any better. They're trying. They're trying to do something different. <laughs> trying to you know do it right, but yeah. some don't know. Like I said earlier in our shows that. You know, coaching is different than playing, and you got to learn how to coach. There's certain things you do as a coach that you have to learn how to do it, so to speak. And, you know, the whole thing is making a player better. You don't make him better by throwing a long, high fly, you know, throw, because that's you don't use that in, in the game. It's a long, you know, like a line drive throw. And uh, in pitchers, same way. I mean, pitchers, you know, some people don't believe in throwing long toss, but to me, the only way to you get your arms stronger is to throw a long toss. And, uh, you know, you look, you look back, you just wish that teams would learn from history. In the past, you know, they threw a lot more pitches. And the more pitches you throw, it's easier to repeat your delivery. And the whole thing about pitching is repeating your delivery. Guys who have no command, they get different release points because they can't repeat or you can't repeat their delivery. So the more you throw, the better chance of repeating your delivery. You know, making your secondary pitches more consistent as well as improving your fastball. But now... You watch a minor league game. I watch his low, low A ball. They throw all breaking balls. In the big leagues, they throw, let them throw more breaking balls than do fastballs. And located fastball is still the best pitch in the game. And uh, it's just a matter of learning how to pitch as against learning how to throw. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, I laugh at all these kids nowadays. Every kid has, a, I won't yeah. call them a pitching coach. They all have throwing coaches and swing coaches. And, uh, I got asked speaking the other day to like, who was your hitting coach growing up? And I, you know, my dad obviously right. showed, showed me how to do things, but I raised my hand. I said, me and my friends and, you know, whoever, whoever else was around when we were playing, but no, we didn't hire a swing coach or a hitting coach. That would have been almost embarrassing. It was a, a knock against you, but I see the value in it. If it's somebody that's credentialed, but the, these guys that are out there nowadays, there's more yeah, swing they, they coaches and throwing coaches than there are Starbucks. The is going to make you a big league player. And uh, actually they, but they regress, I think, in doing that. I mean, a good hitting coach takes what you have and perfects it. Everybody has a little bit of different swing, a little bit of approach, a little different approach, a little bit uh, how they hold a bat, you know, where they hold, where they start the bat. But basically, you all want to get to the same spot where your hands are, you know, even with your body, maybe your bottom hand is a little front of your body, and then your, hand, your hands work from there. But uh, some of these things, you know, like letting go of the top hand. I, t- I talked to... Uh, uh, who was the hitting coach of Yankees that started that? And he said that, you know, Walt Reniak picked up on that, and we had a few other guys pick on that. We let go of the top hand, but uh, I think I can't think of his name. But no, no, it was way before that. But he's the first guy to start that. But he said, you know, people thought I wanted the guy to hit one handed. All I want to do is if they release with a top hand, they won't hook the ball and hook the bat where you like, you know, top handed, so to speak. He just wanted like bottom hand extension. So when after the ball was hit, then you let go of the top hand and bottom hand finish. Yeah, it's afterwards. After, yeah, right. After but he said that a lot of people interpret it as hitting one handed and they let go too soon. And that wasn't the intent of it. But, uh, you know, that was teaching a swing. 
to me, you can't teach that. Some guys let go automatically, but to try to tell a guy to let go that doesn't let go, I mean, a lot of great hitters swung two hand all the way through. A lot of good hitters let go one hand and finished, you know, a little more yeah. bottom hand extension. But uh, it's yeah. And I was I was right. a release I was a release guy just naturally both ways. And my uh, with my boys, my younger son Tanner, both ways he. He releases top yeah. hand. My, my older son does not. He's a two-handed swinger. And I had a guy, uh, <clears throat> you know, like you said, yeah. you don't correct the guy until you know what they do naturally. And you you, you kind of grow with what you do. And my, my, I made my boys dummy proof. So they just shake their head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a guy I didn't know him was trying to talk to my son about, uh, you know, no, no, yeah. don't release the top well, end. Well, Charlie Lau was, Charlie Lau was the one. And Walt Reniak <laughs> was after said, that. But do. they're the ones that did a top hand extension. And both of them were great hitting coaches. But – I think the biggest reason a great hitting yeah. coach is because they taught the players how the pitcher was going to try to get you out and worked on your, your weaknesses and everything else. But they're both very yeah. successful. And uh, But, you know, again, if you can't let go of your top hand, if you don't automatically, you, I don't think you learn that without screwing your uh, swing up. Yeah. I want to go back to the Herman uh, perfect game here and, and talk strategy as a hitter, um, you know, if you're on the other side of that, the guy's in a rhythm. We talk about balance, rhythm, and timing, and pitching, repeating your delivery. Um, you know, obviously, he's got some sort of patterns going on. He's hitting his spots, hopefully, with his fastball that day. What are some things you tell your hitters? It doesn't have to be in a perfect game anyway, but a guy gets in that gets in that rhythm, you know, that inning or two where he's just rolling. What are some strategies or some mental thoughts that these swing coaches won't be giving their hitters that uh, a hitting coach like yourself would be? Well, first of all, if someone's in a groove like that for one like reason, that. he has great command. He can hit off eight quadrants or maybe, you know, whatever, top, up and down, left and right, in and out, whatever. So I would say you don't want to get behind because now you're going to have to hit his pitch for sure. So I think it's been proven that 0-0 might be one of the best hitting counts. I'd be swinging, and I'd be swinging right away. Now, some people don't believe that. Some people think you got to look at pitches. Well, I don't think you should look at pitches when the guy's got that kind of command. You see one that you think you can drive. And when you're a good hitter, good hitters on the first pitch, you look for a pitch in a happy area. That's like maybe middle in, might be right down the middle, might be low. But whatever your happy area is, you should, you know, have a good hack at it where you get a better chance of getting a base hit. Now, if it's in the, you know, in the corner somewhere or not your happy area, you got to take it. I always tell hitters, 0 and 1 is better than 0 for 1. A lot of hitters will get themselves out on a bad pitch, like a slider down away to make hook at the uh, shortstop and be out on the first pitch. Well, the first pitch is your pitch, and it should be in a happy area. Now, a guy's got that kind of command, your happy area might have to get a little bit bigger. Now, with one strike, the happy area does get a little bigger. And with two strikes, your happy area's got to be the, the strike zone. So if you're, your approach is that way, you go up there with Eddie, I'm going to look for a ball right in my happy area. If I get it, I'm going to drive it. And you know, you can be guest hitters. Most good hitters are guest hitters to a certain extent. But most good hitters look fastball and react off the fastball. But when Herman, he had great movement, he had great command. He threw down and away as well as anybody I've seen. And, you know, it was like, you know, backdoor fastball. It came back over the plate to the right-handed hitter. So, to me, you just got to look for a pitch that's a little bit bigger and you're happier in the first pitch because his command was so excellent. And he just tried to drive it somewhere. And again, the guys who break up no hitters are good hitters, the guys who use the whole field. So, I mean, again, when a guy's hot like that, you just hope you can get a pitch, you can drive somewhere and take your chances. 
Yeah. And of course you said there's always a, a defensive play two or three behind that guy that yeah. you look back and like, Ooh, that could have been, that could have been it right there. What about bunting? Um, bunting is not used as much today as it, as it used to be. And I, I was, uh, my dad always said, Hey, double header, you better get at least one bunt base. Right. There's no reason for you to go over on any day when you can bunt like that. So how, how would you use the bunt nowadays? I know it's not used, but I mean, is, is a bunt a, an option? Yeah, I wouldn't a guy use like it. Is that a way to break get up him the break yeah, it up? Break up a no hitter. That's not that's not real good to do. I don't think unless it's going to help you win a game. Uh, I can't remember what the score of the game was, but uh, yeah, when you bunt yes, for a yes. base hit late in the game, and a guy's got a no hitter, unless that can really help you win the game, I think that's kind of like uh, anti baseball, so to speak. But, but yeah. Bush, that's Bush League, yeah. yeah we're, not, we're not promoting that audience. Little guys out there, don't bunt uh, for the sake of breaking up a no-hitter. That'll, Well, they don't do it nowadays, yeah, but back in the day, you it, get, the next guy I would mean, get to me, bunting for a base hit, hit so, yeah, is don't a great, do that. great weapon. Not only for a guy that runs well, but for anybody for that matter. I mean, but you have to practice it. And we talked last time, we talked about bunting. It's difficult to practice in game situations, but the technique you can practice so you can make it better. I saw a game the other day. Katze was managing, you know, manager of uh, – Oakland, first and second, nobody out. And Katsay was one of my favorite players. I coached in Oakland. He was hard-nosed guy, center fielder, great player. And I was happy he became a manager. I don't know how much he likes managing now with a record he has, but he's done a great job. So anyway, he got this guy up, Wade, who's a pretty good infielder, pretty good player. First and second, nobody out, and he has him bunting. I thought it was great. The problem is his technique was so terrible. The first bunny laid down, it was like – would have been a double if hit over third baseman's head, but it was foul ball. Next next bunny laid down, it was just as bad. Foul ball, you know, probably went down halfway to the bullpen. I mean, I, I kidding, you got to be kidding me. This guy should be a guy who can bunt. So here it is, now he's got 0-2, and, and I'm thinking to myself, make him bunt again. Just show me, you know, it's important to bunt. Sure enough, Kassi gave him bunt again with two strikes. He popped that up, foul ball, he's out. And I loved it, though. I mean, you know, do your job, especially a guy like that who's not a great hitter. He's got to be able to get a bunt down. And I give Kasi a lot of credit being a manager. It's like, we're going to bunt. If it takes you three strikes to bunt, if you strike out, you strike out. But maybe they might have to learn how to bunt. But his technique was terrible. He was bunting the ball behind him. He's pecking at the ball, stuff we said we shouldn't do. We talked about bunting last week. Instead of getting the bat out and kind of catching the ball and just using your legs to control it where the bat is, he was just pecking at it, and it was it was embarrassing the way he did it. But you know, bunny is is something like you know, like we said, it's it's technique, it's technique, and and certain guys should perfect it. I mean, it's a great play. Not only that you might get a bunt, but if people know you're bunting, what's going to happen is that uh, the infielder is going to play different. The infielder is going to play different, and you're going to open up a lot of holes for yourself. So, yeah, and even. If- if you got that, if you have that reputation, it was something that I used to do early in the early in the games. I would, if I was taking a pitch, I'd show bunt, see if I could exactly. bring the third base. Yeah, and so then I mean, it's a weapon, no doubt about it. And, for you too. and it's Just not that tough to bunt, but I think bunny is a good way to break out of a slump. Also, I mean, like I said, when I talked about bunny for a hip, a hit. I mean, you know, I have a little different technique, but you know, I was taught this when I was playing with the Cardinals. You know, cross over with your back foot, but it makes you wait till you see the ball in the air, and it's a good timing thing, and makes you wait back. And just like hitting. I mean, people get in a slump hitting is they don't wait for the ball. I mean, good hitters, you know, they get a good pitch, they wait, they watch the ball, and they're quick. And if you don't wait, you just jump, jumping on your front foot too soon, 
now you're out front and you can't time the ball and you're, you're swinging out of the zone and everything else. So I think it's uh bunny is, is should be a great, you know, uh, weapon for any hitter for that matter. I mean, not the real, real good hitters, but, uh, you know, Juan Soto's dropped a few bunts down over the years. But Juan Soto's a smart player. Oh, yeah. Hey, Mickey. Yeah, Mickey Mantle hey, did Mickey the Mantle technique bunted, I, we I all talked about, bunt, crossover right? with your left foot. He said, I cross over. I'm on my way to first base before I even bunt the ball. And he went down like 3-1, 3-2. I mean, he could hit the ball yeah. as far as anybody. But there's time and place. He just needed to get on base rather than, I mean, home run, single, same thing, because you did down two or three runs. Well, people in the audience, I know we're not a visual show, but audio show, bat and left-handed, crossing over with that back foot towards the pitcher. What that also does with bunting technique, Bobby talked about this last week, is it gets that bat in fair territory as well, where you get the momentum to first base. Um, it makes you wait longer, which I agree with, too, that let that ball travel. And you also get that bat in fair territory where, um, you know, when we, we chatted, them, if you're going to make a mistake button for a base hit, it's either going to be on the line or it's going to be fouled. You don't want to leave it out there. Well, you get the bat, like you said, in fair territory. It makes the foul right lines there. a little bit so, wider, just like when you sacrifice. You should move up in a box. I see some guys move back in yeah. a box. Well, now the foul lines, the angles are different. But if you get up in a box, you get a little more airy, like the bunt it into a fair territory. Yeah. yeah. Now, I've got a middle infield question for you from our audience here, uh, watching games, and I'll paraphrase the question because it's quite long, but – Again, we, we talk about, a, remember a time when double plays were automatic, you know, running around first base ground ball, guys look like they were more in sync in the middle. We're just coming off the era of the shift. So probably the middle is a little less in sync than it used to be. But um, the difference between a power feed and a flip. Um, so, you know, flip being underhand, power feed being overhand. Is there a position, is there a, is there a body position? Let's say it's ground ball to the second baseman. What should the shortstop be? looking for to determine whether his partner is going to be power feeding or flipping to him. Is there a verbal? Is there a visual? Is it position on the, you know, as far as the uh, second base moving toward, uh, toward well, the my line? My thought is that the baseline, uh, when I play short, I that? play a little second. I just want something firm, but don't handcuff me. Don't give me a bullet. Because the secret of making a double play is for the pivot man to be, be moving before he catches the ball. If I'm a second baseman, I put my left foot on the base, he throws me to throw, like, hopefully to my glove hand side. So as I step to catch the ball, I step before I catch the ball. I step, catch the ball on my right foot and throw to first base. Same thing as a shortstop. I, give him, I put my glove up for a target for him. And now as he throws the ball, I'm moving to catch it before, you know, I move him to catch it and then I catch it and throw it first. So if you handcuff me with, a you know, like a hard throw, now I'm defensive. I got to catch it first and I got to move second. So I always say, you know, give me something firm. And again, as an infielder, you got to know where you where you're positioned, what kind of throw you're going to make before the ball is hit. So if I'm a second baseman, I'm going to say, if the ball's hit to my left, I'm going to pivot my feet and I'm going to throw overhand. If the ball's hit right at me or in front of me, I'm going to come in, catch it. And I'm going to throw like a backhand sidearm throw with my my forearm is parallel with the ground and flip it that way. If the ball's to my right. I'm going to pick it up. I'm going to underhand it to the shortstop. Yep, that's what I mean. But to me, the, the pivot man should put your glove up because as soon as the fielder feels the ball, the first thing he's going to see is the glove. You just throw it right to the glove. And when I played short, the same way, of course, when you go in a hole, you know, you got to come up and you got to, you know, give him a good throw, but you don't handcuff him. And a shortstop, 
Infield should always catch the ball, bring it to your chest. That's where your throw motion starts. Bring it to your chest and give a short arm to the second baseman. Now, if the ball is right at you, you're going to come in and underhand it to the second baseman as you can step in with your right foot toward him and give him a good firm throw, but not a loopy throw or not a bullet throw. What the first throw is what makes a double play. If you give the pivot man a bad throw, it'd be difficult to make a double play. So the first throw is very important. Now, again, with a shortstop, you go up the middle. Sometimes you have to use that backhand sidearm type of throw to get it back to him. But again, the whole thing is you got to practice it. You got to be in unison. You got, you know, it's almost like a dance step. You know, the infielder's got to practice, see where it is. Another thing for a shortstop is you can't hide the ball. You got to get your left hand out of the way as you're making that throw. You can't like throw the ball from behind your glove because then the pivot man cannot be moving before he catches the ball. And the whole thing about being quick is move before you catch it. Start your, you know, your crow hop, so to speak, before you catch it. And then just as you catch it, your right foot comes down and you throw to first base as a second baseman. Now, when you, uh, when you say handcuff, and I hear this phrase all the time now, uphill, uphill, uphill. Where do you want the ball in relation to your body when you're I receiving I want the ball to, right in front say, of my okay, left I'm not shoulder. Being handcuffed. So as I catch it, I bring it back to my chest. And I'm throwing the first base. So if you throw it over my right shoulder, now I got to bring it back to the throw. You can't. Where guys make bad throws is they throw, they don't come to the middle of their chest. I mean, your throwing motion starts right in the middle of your chest. So whether you're feeling a ground ball, if you backhand the ball, you should bring it back to your chest and then start your throwing motion from there. But when a lot of people feel the ball to the right, backhand it, and also bring a hand straight up, and now they're pushing the ball. They have no arm speed because there's no generating a little circle. I always call it, you make a little circle. So you generate arm speed and throw from there. And you want to get a short arm action. Wherever your elbow goes, your hand goes. So I always try to keep my elbow closer to my body, closer, and I get up there, and I don't have to bring my elbow and my hand way back. Because guys with long, long arm actions aren't real good middle infielders. The whole thing about playing the middle, especially when I played and recently, you have to get rid of all quick and get up in the air. That's when they could hit you. Well, now they can't hit you. So anybody can play second to a certain extent. But uh, the thing is, you got to be under control and balance. But a good firm throw without handcuffing a pivot man is what you have to do. And, again, you have to practice it, you know, different angles. I mean, like I said, second baseman, there's just three different throws you make. You pivot around. You know, you, you flip your feet, you know, from right foot, you know, goes toward the, the base and left foot steps toward the base. And uh, the other one is a sidearm backhand, and the other one is just a flip underhand. But you have to know what kind of throw you're going to make before you catch the ball because yeah. where infielders make mistakes and make errors is that they're going after the ball and not thinking about what throw they're going to make. Now they get there and they panic and they lose sight of the ball and they, they miss the ground ball. So knowing your mind, if I got to go one, two steps this way, I'm going to throw it yeah, this way. If they go right at me, or two steps either way, I'm going to throw it this way especially second baseman. Shortstop is a little bit easier. I thought shortstop was easier to play than second base because second base, you have to go both ways. Shortstop, you're basically just going one way. Other maybe going a hole, but you have to just go one way to make a double play. Oh, yeah. The short shortstop, exactly. I, I yeah. love that. was like a day off for me because everything was in front of you. You get to see everything. You get to be athletic. But second base was like, I won't say it was like being a catcher, but it was probably the next next uh, step on the field mentally anyway, and, uh, and everything everything backwards, so to speak. 
Um, now, with the last show, you gave a great chronicle on holding guys on second base and getting that. You know, we're talking about the dance step with the middle infield. Same thing with the pitcher delivering. Uh, infielders letting the pitcher know, hey, it's time to throw now, showing them that open hand. Or if you're the second base, yeah, if you're second baseman, showing them the glove um, so you're not doing a daylight play. But letting them know when you're when he should pitch so you get back to field your position. I see a lot of disjointed middles like that in games. The question we got asked, and you talked about first base as well, kind of starting behind and creeping in. But what, what about third base? Um, we had a guy ask a question, he, and he actually showed a couple pictures um, of third baseman holding guys on third base. And this is grassroots, not not big league level, uh, but even high school and, and, and that age, holding guys on third base like you would do a first baseman. And I just cringed watching that too. What's your how, how do you hold a guy well, on third base? You know, I saw a big league team baseball hold a guy on third base with a third baseman on third base. Believe it or not. And I couldn't understand what they're doing, but they did it. But third baseman holding them on is basically, you know, not many pitchers will throw to third base for a pickoff move, especially a left-hander. Once in a while, a right-hander will. But uh, I think, you know, you just got to be close enough to the base where if the guy gets too big a lead, you just walk in. And you ain't getting, you know, you can take a jab step toward third. I mean, third base coach, like I said, a coach is a runner's eyes. So the runner might not see it, but if you jab step, Coach is going to yell at you, you know, back or careful anyway. So you just have to be in a vicinity. Uh, you know, the runner, even if you're on a base, the runner's going to get a short lead, and he's going to get his lead on a secondary lead. That's the most important lead off third is your secondary lead. Well, actually, off every base for that matter. But you're not going to uh, – first of all, the guy's not going to steal home unless he's De La Cruz or whatever his name is. Or, or, uh, or I, 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 you know, Kiner, yeah. Khalifa, whatever he did it. But <clears> – <throat> I mean, it, that happens very rarely. It only happens because yeah. the pitcher's not alert in the third baseman. Nobody yells at the pitcher. But anyway, I think that you should just be within a vicinity where the guy, you control the guy's lead. You want him leading 30 feet off the base or whatever. Now, again, you got a left-handed hitter up. You have to uh, maybe a little shallower because the shallower you get, the closer you are to the base. But there's no real way of holding a guy in like there is a way at second base or shortstop or first base as far as creeping in and kind of keeping a lock in a guy in because the guy at third base is not really getting a walking lead. Yeah. And then, and you brought up the guy I was going to talk about. We talked about uh, kind of Falefa and, and then uh, De La Cruz stole home different. They stole home different ways. And that was another question that was asked uh, what happened in that situation and, and talk about it from both sides. What are you talking to your runner about to get him to do that? Or what is he seeing anyway? And how do you prevent that type of, I don't want to say laziness, but it was a lack of awareness from a pitcher-catcher combo. You know, what should be their mindset? Well, uh, as opposed uh, to, I guess, I guess Dela Cruz, the pitcher was walking away toward the mound with his back to him, and he started walking, and I was saying he took off. And nobody yelled at him until it was too late. But it was a heads-up play. In that same token, I've seen guys steal second base the same way. Gets a base hit, the outfield. I just throw it to the second baseman or the shortstop. Shortstop throws back to the pitcher. And the pitcher turns his head. And the infielder turns his head and starts walking back to his position. Where the guy who hit the base hit takes a big turn and kind of stays there. Once they, once they throw the ball to the pitcher and the infielder walks back to his position, the runner takes off. And the guys can't react quick enough to get back to the base, so the guy steals second base. Now, Hunter Felifa, when he stole home, it was yeah. – uh, Third base was playing way away because a left-handed hitter rose up. And he got a walking lead. 
and he just kept walking and walking and walking. And once the left-handed pitcher started his windup, he just took off and beat the throw home. Now, again, we said, anytime you go through your windup with a man at third base, you have to peek at the runner before you start your windup. And if he's got too big a lead or you see him creeping in, you got to step off and, and therefore the third baseman's got to, you know, run him back also. But it's just, you know what, prevent is easier than curing. And if you're not alert, um, you can't prevent and you fall asleep out there and next thing a good runner will take advantage of you. Yeah. Now with that runner on third, like uh, De La Cruz had, what what I noticed uh, that he was doing it, he was doing it all game. He, he had a habit of even with nobody on third base, he turned his back towards the third base runner. And uh, th- that was a rule of thumb. I remember I've never a pitcher, um, but remember hollering at our pitchers. If you, you have, it takes just the same amount of energy to turn towards the runner when you get back to the mound or, you know, backpedal back as it does to turn your back to him. You get those over aggressive runners, something simple like that. Like you said, it was a heads up play by De La Cruz. He saw the guy multiple times turn his back to the, the runner. He just, he flew and that was, he got on base. He stole second. He stole, well, third, he stole home. That was, uh, you gotta have kind speed of like he has, but you gotta have guts to do it too. And he has both. Now some guys, you have to have speed, maybe to steal the base sometimes, but to do what he did, you have to have a lot of speed, which he has, but, uh, you know, just like a base runner, you, you can't drop your head. You got to know where the ball is all the time. With an infielder or a pitcher, you got to know where the runners are all the time. And it's just a matter of looking up. But I, I can't stand it when I see guys drop their head, especially base runners. They get a single or a double, and they get and they drop on their head. And next thing you know, the ball's bobbled in the outfield or it's overthrown to the infielder. And you could have taken an extra base if you were knew where the ball was all the time. I mean, a lot of times, a third base coach, you come around 30, stops you, you know, point yeah. where the ball is. It was find the ball. And uh, all the good third base coaches do that. They'll, they'll put the left hand up, you know, stay at third, but then I'll point to where the ball is. So you always have to be aware. I mean, field awareness is the most important thing. It's kind of called instincts in some ways, but it's something that good players are alert and they anticipate stuff like that. And uh, the other players sometimes they fall asleep and just, you know, it's like walking down the street and, crossing the road and not looking left and right. You just walk straight ahead. So, I mean, you have to be alert and, and have a little game awareness. Yeah. Now, it kind of leads into the the last question here. You were talking about runners. You know, we had on De La Cruz's alertness on the base paths, taking advantage of somebody, you know, falling asleep or a bad habit. You hit on the last question where, you know, a guy gets a single. Actually, it's a two-part question. Single to the outfield. I know it's dependent upon it, but what did you teach in terms of how far around that first base bag? You know, I, I think of Pete Rose in my mind. He was thinking double all the time. How far around that first base bag do you employ a base runner to get out? And then second, when a runner retreats well, to the bag, the rule is the farther the ball is away from you, the farther you can wait, go away from the base. In other words, ball down left field line, you can take a bigger turn than if it's not at the right fielder. So the farther is the ball away from you, the farther you can go off the base. But to me, when you take a turn or when you get a base hit, you should be thinking double all the way. So you, you take your turn, go around there, you run hard all the way until you know you can't make second, and then you stop. And the way you stop is like an uh, ice skater stopping, where your feet are facing the infield, and you get, you know, you almost stop with your, your feet facing that way. I've seen guys come around, and they're facing second base and trying to stop that way. It's tough to stop that way, you know, without really stumbling or whatever. So... Have your feet angled. So now they're, they're, uh, your toes are pointing toward third base. 
So you know, if the guy bobs it, you can react and go to second, or if he catches it, you can you know push off your right foot and go back to first base. So being in a position to react either way is very important too once you're around the base. But like I said, if it's down to the right field or even down the right field line, it's a short throw from there to first base, so you can't take that big a turn. Is against their, uh, to the left side of the infield, the outfield, you can take a bigger turn. So, like I said, it, the rule is farther away from you the ball is, the farther away you can go from the base. What about retreating back to the bag? You know, you said you stopped and now you're getting back to the bag. Third base, you, you know, said, hey, third base coach is pointing to locate the ball, be alert. What should be your head position? Let's say, you know, you got a base hit the left center and you're retreating back to the bag, ball's coming in. To I the think he's been watching the ball. What, uh, you what should be back, your head position? Looking the ball over your right shoulder. Retreating. I mean, you got to always know where the ball is. Now, you know if it's going to be a close play, then you're going to beat it back to first and just put your head down and, and you know, slide into first base or, you know, dive back in or whatever. But you got to, you know, I think you should always know where the ball is. It doesn't hurt to, you know, turn your head a little bit, find the ball and see it. The good base runners will always know where the ball is. They'll turn their head and – Rather than look at the coach, you're your own, you're your own, uh, you're your own, you're your own coach. Especially unless the ball's not a right field line after you hit a base hit. But normally, if it's not a right field line, you're going to keep going anyway. But like I said, when you go into second base, say you hit a ball right center field, you should watch the ball away, determine if you're going to go to third or not. And uh, so now they, you know, they feel the ball and they throw back to first. I would back pedal, you know, sideways, you know, jogging back, but. Find a ball. Once you see he's going to come up throwing, then you get to get back quick. I mean, you know how far you are from the base, how long it's going to take you to get there. So you got to judge where you are in relation to the, where the outfielder feels the ball. But you have to really know. You can't put your head down and just run back to the base because you get deep by the first baseman or uh, bad things can happen. And, again, you don't have to depend on a coach. So he will help you there, but you shouldn't have to depend on a coach to uh, get yourself back to the base safely. Oh, agreed. Next week, they want us to talk about sliding. So we got to prep for sliding. I know we're not, again, not a visual show, but uh, it's a pet peeve of mine. I know it's a pet peeve of yours out there. It's it's uh, terrible today. And I don't think guys are coached on it anymore, get get taught it, and it's just not seen as a priority. And I just got done reading something. I'll have to send it to you because you've been sharing so many great notes with me and it's it's, it's I've enjoyed reading it. But Ty Cobb had nine yeah. different ways to slide. And I'll, I'll save that for next week. Um, and he, had, he had nicknames for all of them. So. But uh, what, what did we miss this week? Well, and, we're talking and, about sliding. I mean, sliding is a well start, no doubt about sliding. it. Uh, I'm against diving. It's dangerous. But we can talk about that next week. But uh, I think, you know, we had some good conversations about different things and kind of like summed up some of the stuff we talked about in the, in the last uh, podcast. And, you know, I guess you've had quite a few questions from the listeners, which is good. Yeah. No, they're enjoying yours. A lot of – What's, what's interesting is a lot of high school baseball coaches, um, you know, guys that are – because baseball high, high school baseball coaches are coaching all year round. They're coaching their teams, and they're in the summertime. And I'm excited and enthused that they're attracted to your podcast because you're hitting what I consider to be complicated simplicity. This is baseball. This is nuts and bolts. This is not a suggestion. This is what has to be done. Yeah. So I'm glad well, I was a high school that coach faction of, for 12 years, so I mean, world. I know that. I know how to coach in a gym. We had all kinds of all kinds of techniques to do all the uh, when it's snowing yeah. outside. We could do a lot of fundamentals in the gym. So I appreciate the high school coaches listening. I mean, I know what I know because I learned from people older than me, and uh, 
I was fortunate. I had a lot of great coaches, so I learned a lot. And uh, whatever I can pass on, I, you know, willing to do that. No, it's been phenomenal. And the next week, so we promise everybody we'll get to sliding. We'll cover some other topics. I know I had some questions about dugout decorum. Um, so we'll uh, we'll get to that too. I watched, uh, and I won't go on this soapbox. We'll cover for next week, but I can't stand looking at a messy dugout. It reminds me of walking in my kid's room and seeing an unmade bed. There's there's a way to way to do things in there. So we'll let you talk about that next week as well. Um, but uh, Bob, great show again. This episode two twenty six with Touch Em All. And uh, again, thanks to our audience, uh, 20,000 subscribers. We opened up a new box of subscribers. So we're thinking we doubled in, in volume, which now attracts uh, the wonderful sponsors. So reward some of our guys who do a great job. All of our people, I say, do a great job every week on the network, Real Voices of the Game. But uh, Bob, thanks you so much for giving us your time every week and wish you a good week and hope you enjoy the All-Star Game. Looking uh, forward to seeing anybody really. in particular. I mean, uh, again, a lot of guys opt out, you know, injuries yeah. and so forth, so... You know, this, you know, Kershaw was one of my favorite guys. My coach was Dodgers. I was there when he came to the big league, so I was looking forward to seeing him in the All-Star break. But one thing about Kershaw, he's a, he's a special guy. He's there. He's there. You want to be part of the All-Star game even though he can't play. A lot of guys opt out and didn't even go out there. But Kershaw's special, and uh, I always respect him, the way he pitched and the way he acted. But like you said before, dugout, it's all about discipline. I mean, yeah. players want discipline, even though they, they might fight it to a certain extent. But you don't have anything unless you have discipline. So discipline is most important for you coaches out there. And do it the way it's supposed to be done. No, I agree. We'll touch on that too, the overriding of discipline, because I think that gets a bad rap nowadays. It's uh, seen as a negative, and it's not. It's uh, I, I believe that you do. I think kids, players, men, whatever race, they want to be in a disciplined environment. And they're just, I think with today's culture, they're just not used right. to it. They can't differentiate between coaching and criticism and discipline is seen as negative words. So it's certainly not. So, well, thanks again for what you give to the show and, and our audience. I know I got smarter. I know our audience did too. We got a, we got a bright audience. They'll, they'll litter us with tons of questions again, and we'll respond to you next week. But we promise we'll hit sliding. We'll hit dugout stuff. We'll hit discipline and uh, whatever else you want to throw our way. But with that, Real Voices of the Game, Touch Them All, episode 226. Have a great week, guys.